1: The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be with you. As another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off, joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir.
0: Good evening, Noah. How's it going?
1: I'm doing... I'm doing great. You are back out and in the field working on your chicken coop of all things.
0: Yep. Uh, This is the season that I, so I have two seasons here. I have winter and yard work. And so this is the yard work season.
1: Your questions are welcome. You can add them to the conversation live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to have you. Uh, Alternatively, You can call in 1-855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Let's get into some feedback. Our first email comes in from DJ. DJ writes in and says, hi Noah and Steve and the crew and community behind the scenes. Thank you for including them because they do a lot. Greetings from the other side of sunny Sodak. Still loving all of the Ask Noah show since the beginning and I have a moderately lengthy Question. To the pros, a recent discussion on some cloud storage, backup, and ZFS that you've had in recent years. My trouble is about backing up a ZFS pool on a cloud service that offers a drive slot hosting. At least, since I first heard about ZFS.rent on a previous episode of Ask Noah's show, in theory, the slot hosting is the solution for problems of maintaining off-site backups for my home NAS. For example, backing up my home ZFS dataset in the range of a dozen terabytes is growing to 20 terabytes within several years. Shouldn't have to pay $10 per terabyte per month or whatever the going rate is for the typical cloud storage. Cold storage is not useful for frequent backups and it's still cost prohibitive. Even if those services are always backed up by ZFS, that means nothing if I can't interface with the ZFS tools there. A dedicated bare metal server could work. That would be overkill and more spendy. Some people use friends and relatives. Homes for off-site bare metal hosting, but that can have its own problems. Instead, I prefer buying my own drives, ZFS sending datasets to them, shipping those drives to a slot host, and then having specific drives accessible on a cheap VPS, which I'd use mainly for receiving ZFS snapshots over the internet. No need to even mount the dataset, rather just keep ZFS-native encryption, never loading the keys onto the VPS to mount that dataset, instead keeping the slot host as an encrypted off-site backup for which I only recover in case of an emergency and periodically test my restorations, of course. Is it true, is true slot hosting actually a thing, e.g. $10 per drive per month, including attached VPS storage with the storage drive, passed through it, just pair a 20-terabyte drive in a mirror and a VDEV, and that rate should be plenty for backups into the future and the savings of traditional cloud storage the trouble i found with zfs.rent is there seems to be no clear onboarding process or sla it appears a passion project by one to do guys in their spare time i totally respect that and i want them to succeed and grow in their business and in this space but it doesn't seem like something i can rely on at this point other companies offer similar pricing per slot but they also have odd requirements okay they'll only take 3.5 drives But I don't get how they justify refusing 3.5 SATA drives over 8 terabyte, for example. Some bare metal hosts also have bizarre limitations on drive capacity, since other competitors load drives by mail and then charge just to port unencrypted files to conventional cloud storage to keep the hardware for deep freeze, mailing the drives back in case of an emergency with no syncs of current snapshots. Am I missing something as a good solution here? I simply want to pay for dedicated hosting of a few drives to be hooked up to a VPS and running ZFS in some form. Does that make me crazy? Are there entirely different alternatives I should consider instead? Thanks for all the good work, DJ. So, Steve, I'll start by asking you, do you have any experience with either drive slot hosting or ZFS, uh, what was it, ZFS.rent specifically?
0: No, I don't largely so i i definitely empathize with with the listener here however it's such a niche market right the the large enterprises or even the small medium businesses that are requiring some sort of offsite backup service outside of you know whatever uh thing that they set up like there's the um dropbox and all those sorts of things that the average person might use to quote unquote back up their files to the cloud but there's a big a big gap between those people and people that actually want to have offsite storage and largely speaking the the kind of prosumer i suppose that you and i might be even i might probably my data wouldn't be good for this type of hosting so it's it's really hard to find a host that is gonna find exactly what you need because it's such a niche market relative to the overall strategy that's out there between small businesses, like small, medium businesses, and the end user that's gonna just use something like Dropbox. So it's gonna be very difficult to find. You're looking for a niche of a niche here.
1: I don't know a whole lot about drive slot renting. I have worked with a number of different companies that rent metal, Rent worked with a number of different companies that do ZFS pool storage. So in other words, it's like cloud storage, but you they, it's their drives, it's their system. They just accept a snapshot from you kind of a thing. In fact, we do that at all. Well, tell you what, here's what I'll do. I don't usually promote my own paid services on asno i try to give things away but i will tell you this i don't know i don't know of any other alternative in fact zfs.rent is the only service i'm aware of that even does something like this at the moment i will tell you that at AltaSpeed, speed we have a a, a a a zfs cluster in a data center that we maintain i'm sure we could work something out to get you drives and If nothing else, we're not just doing it part time. This is what we eat, live and breathe is living open source technology. And that's part of the data center is owning our own part of the infrastructure. So shameless self-promotion, I think we would be able to help you there. But if anybody knows of a service that already exists and maybe has a track record of being able to rent a drive slot and will allow you to attach a zfs drive or something like that uh, in fact really if you think about it really all this guy needs is the ability to run you know ubuntu 2204 and have the ability to connect to the physical drive that he sends in um and that will be enough to get zfs up i mean from there you can ssh in get zfs set up import the pool if you want like you say you don't even necessarily have to mount it it just makes it accessible to you um but yeah i i I think uh, if you're going, let Steve said, it's such a niche thing. If it's something you're interested in, I might just go with ZFS rent and yes, it's a passion project and yes, maybe it's only run by two guys, but let us know how it works out. And if you're looking for something more in the way of when I need help, uh, I, I need somebody there to answer the phone or to respond to a ticket or get hands on or whatever. Um, if that's something interesting to you, and again, I want to be very clear here because I don't usually talk about paid stuff. Anytime I even bring up Altospeed, I'll usually say, well, we'll do that for you for free. This is the kind of thing because I have to pay people to do it. we we'll would likely send you a bill for it. But if you're interested in that, send an email to help at and someone will help you get started. Eric writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. I've enjoyed the past episodes discussing note taking. I've used standard notes for a couple of years now. However, it lacks some features. That I was looking for. I took the opportunity recently to take a look at a few note programs mentioned on the show, and I finally figured out why people talk so highly about formatting in Markdown. I've been looking for this sort of formatting tool for a while now. I just didn't realize it. I've settled into a workflow of using standard notes, but mainly for lists and using Joplin for note taking and long term docu- documentations. Using Joplin, particularly Markdown, as a program for agnostic document formatting, leads to my question Can you explain the term technical debt? In terms of then software and programming, what are some of the best practices to minimize technical debt? And at what point should you start looking at the system in question and decide to start over with these best practices? For example, at my business, I have a template file. We use all of our CAD projects in. That template includes CAD layers, line styles, pen tables, in addition to actual drawing components. It is a passed down file that was created a long time ago by the staff and has since moved... And has become modified at least five different people by now. Should we just step up to the plate and recreate a similar project with our current methods? It does mean a loss of productivity of staff and their time and inefficiencies as we learn the new template. Thank you for all your time and effort in producing the show and keep up the great work, Eric. So Steve, this would be right up your alley. When when, when you have clients and they start talking to you and you say, hey, really, you need to evaluate a different path. And they look at you and go, but Steve, that means starting all the way over from scratch. What do you tell them?
0: Well, we start off, so let's, let's start off by explaining like the, the listeners asking, Eric asks, can you explain technical debt, um, in terms other than software programming? Because if you go look on the internet, uh, technical debt is often referred to in terms of, you know, coding and stuff, stuff like that. So the idea behind technical debt is that there's a a right way to do things. And there's an expedient way to do things. So, for example, let's, let's take uh, making a structure, okay? The right way to do things might be to dig down two feet, pour the concrete, put your post in, then level everything off, okay? That's, that might be the right way, uh, including making sure that you come above the ground with your concrete so that none of the board is actually exposed to the dirt. The, the expedient way would be I dig down a foot because that's all I feel like doing and I'm going to surround it with gravel and then backfill it with dirt and that will hold the pole in place. But the the post itself is going to be contacting with dirt and water and all of the rest of that sort of stuff and eventually it will rot. That is what technical debt is. It's when you have an optimal way, but it's going to necessarily take longer and then you have this is the expedient way it's going to work for now what it will absolutely come back and bite us in the future. And when you have too much technical debt, this goes back to your question of like, how am I going to explain this to a client? If you have too much technical debt, it means that instead of trying to take your structure apart and just replace the one rotting pole, it's probably better to just demolish the entire structure and start from scratch and make make sure that your foundation is laid properly. Um, And because at the end of the day, you might be able to get away with putting two two by fours across beside the rotted wood. Okay, that will hold your structure up for a little bit longer. But at the end of the day, uh, it's still all going to collapse on you and it might be rather spectacular and unexpected. So it's better to just tear it down and build it up from the ground up. So hopefully that that explanation of what technical debt means in the real world is kind of helpful. The way
1: I would go about doing this, Eric, is I would ask myself, I would look at, first of all, on the other side, will your team be more productive? And I'll give you an example of where that's not always the case, right? So we had we have checklists that we use for a number of different things, and the checklist template that we used to start with was a Libra document, and it was originally modified from the airlines. The airlines have a, a checklist template that they use in aircraft for going around doing the preflights and all the rest of it, and it has like a two-column thing and little dots that separate the checklist item from the action. And when we tried to recreate that in Markdown, because we were using Markdown for everything else, what we quickly determined is trying to do two columns in Markdown is very difficult. It's, in fact, it's actually it's not possible. You have to use something else in addition to markdown to make that happen and so we looked back and forth for a little bit and ultimately what we decided was if it's only going to be electronic it's fine to do it in markdown because it doesn't really matter if it's two column or not who it's you know it doesn't eat up any more paper that sort of thing if we're going to print it so for example it's the checklist that sits in the server room so all the power's out and you might not have access to the internet or laptop or anything else that we're probably going to stick with the original template because it is A tremendous amount of work to try to get to the same place with the quote-unquote new system and doesn't really do a better job of achieving the goal when if i look at your business and i looked at those template files that you had if all of them were if all of them are working and you're happy and everything is great and it, it it works for you that I might consider just keeping that where I would look at to say, okay, it's worth taking a loss of productivity. It's worth taking a little bit of inefficiencies as we learn a new template is if you believe that on the other side of that, you're going to have less technical debt and you're going to be in a place where your business is ultimately more productive. If 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 that is the case and you look and say, yeah, we would be better off and it's a little bit lost on me if we're still talking about Markdown when you're talking about this template or if you're talking about uh, CAD templates. But if you look down the road and and say, yeah, that would eventually if we were on the other side, man, things would be faster and quicker and we could accommodate for some of the things that we frankly didn't know about when we created the first template. Then I would make. Then I would go ahead and invest. And yeah, it takes a lot of time. And yes, it, it 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 takes it takes a ton of time, and it takes a lot of money. And frankly, people don't like their cheese moves. So anytime you do that inside of a business, you're going to have people that that gripe at you. Um, and I, I, you know, I just tell people, you know, especially with us, we are in IT. We fix things that are broken. Things don't get moved unless they're pushed. When you push something, it creates friction. So we should expect friction because we deal with problems all day. And so. Get beyond it, and largely i've had i've had nobody really complains and and we're mostly able to move on so that's kind of how I would go about evaluating that. Steve, am I missing anything in the way of efficiencies or productivity?
0: It's really hard to to judge this because starting from scratch, unless you kind of have done pilots, uh, you're largely going to be guessing and you're going to be mm. adding technical debt anyways because the reason why things specifically what eric brought up in terms of how the templates work and stuff like that the reason why they accommodate or accumulate technical debt excuse me is because you set up with a narrow scope in mind and you start bolting things on top of it and eventually it becomes this frankenstein and so when you do a rewrite you'll you'll get rid of all of that stuff that you bolted on the side but then you're going to start bolting other things on because mm. that's just how these things work. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day as a as a business owner or at least as a team lead, you have to actually reevaluate these things on a, if not a yearly, every 2 to 3 years because ultimately at the end of the day, you need to continuously make the judgment of is the is the pain from the technical debt worth a rewrite? And you don't want to hold on to the old system if you can make it as modular as possible during a rewrite, it'll make your life a little easier. So the only thing I'd say is it'll be nice and shiny for a couple of months until you start finding edge cases you didn't think of. So nothing is going to be perfect. It's all, it all boils down to how much of a problem is this thing actually causing you? And it could be significant. We don't really get a good sense of that from, the, from Eric's email one
1: 855 450 855 the email live at asknoahshow.com. Jacob asks in the Geek Lab, does anybody have any guidance on what to look for to make NFS more stable? I see all the time that people are saying, use NFS for shared storage, but I've never had great success with it. I'm always fighting stable file handling errors or require a full reboot of the node. Some bash scripting to unmount the intended mount, clear the mount points and then remount. For context, I'd like to use NFS on my servers and use the NAS as bulk storage with either data with NFS that doesn't prove stable. So I'm going to start here. Steve, I think this is what both you and I do at our homes for our home labs. I don't want to call it home lab because it's not really for, you know, it's really what we rely on. But we have a file server and then we each have, you have uh, quite a bit more complicated virtual infrastructure than I do, but the whole idea is that it's all stored ultimately on the NAS.
0: Yeah. uh, My whole, whether it's my OpenShift lab with like actual hardware that, you know, I've got a lab just for OpenShift Kubernetes stuff that, that has like half a terabyte of RAM in it, whether it's that stuff or whether it's all of like Home Assistant and all the rest of that sort of stuff, it's all driven by NFS, all of it. Um, So, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I have seen the stale file handles before, but I haven't run into that at home. Like by before, I mean well before I joined at Red Hat. So I'm not exactly sure what kind of uh, situations might have caused this other than, um, you know, a file that has been removed somewhere in the pipe that somebody else is trying to access. So I've never found, I, I, I have run both Samba and NFS and of the two, I have found Samba to be slightly less reliable. So uh, ultimately I've never had a problem with stability with NFS at all. Um, It might have been, I moved away from managing NFS by hand and I've actually using system D to manage my NFS mounts. And maybe that's why I haven't had a problem because as soon as uh, system D became an option that I could replace AutoFS with, mm-hmm. I did, and I haven't looked back. And so maybe there's some smarts that are happening inside of the SystemD uh, ecosystem that, have, that is preventing me from seeing some of these errors.
1: So, but I also feel like to a degree, and maybe I'm off here a little bit, but I also feel like to a degree, it's a function of if you're not, like if, if you're talking about having NFS like on a laptop and it comes and goes from the facility, I could see the mounting or unmount or SystemD thing playing into it but it sounds to me like he's talking about like, servers that are sitting in one location in which case in theory you should just be able to add the nfs mount point into f stab and bob's your uncle that mount should be there when the system comes up
0: yeah um that is true as long as the so like yeah that is that is true for a stable system the other thing to look into is a lot of a lot of times people don't actually do any kind of looking into what is my export look like. So mm. I just kind of glanced at my NAS and I'm using things like uh no W delay, no subtree check. You know, I've, I've, I have gone through for various mount points and changed the options depending on what I'm sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could also be part of like, sometimes I'm using sync. Sometimes I'm using insecure depending on what it is that I'm sharing. Right. And so there could be some tuning that will help uh, quote unquote stabilize your NFS mounts because you can't, you can, I was going to say you can't use the same options for all the mounts, but you you can, it's just, it's more efficient, more expedient. If you actually know what the purpose of the mount is and what the intended consumer is, Uh, for example, if it's a, if it's something that you're reading from, there's a bunch of stuff that you don't care about. Like I don't care about the subtree check. I don't care about, um, you know i don 't care about any of the security stuff because i 'm mounting it read only there's there 's a whole bunch of stuff that that goes away if you know the types of the types of data and the mount uh points that you 're using on the other end of it well said I will include in the
1: show notes the list of arguments that I use when i mount n f s and i don 't know Steve if you 're willing and able to do the same um, you know then then you 'll have it there um but i w- I would invite you to I guess give it a shot again and see what you think. Cause I, I agree with you that it, or I agree with Steve that they're really, I'm shocked really that you're having a problem. I, I wouldn't have expected that. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855 6624 The email live at asknoahshow.com. Another text messenger from the geek lab, uh, Sunjab writes in and says, there's an extreme amount of tension between Graphene OS and CalyxOS, SecureOS, F-Droid, and R-Privacy, claims of m- murder attempts via swatting calls, claims of conspiracy, and a huge amount of friction. You can read about it on Reddit, Twitter, Mastodon, etc. I'm not sure what's happening, but I'm genuinely concerned. Makes me wonder about the community and mental health regards to privacy-focused development. So, I guess, without... Knowing all of the particulars and details, and again, part of what frustrates me about not just the Linux space, but this is just true of humans in general. What happens is we get there are ten parts to a story. We learn parts one, two, three, five, seven, and eight, and so we're missing you know six and ten, and we just make it up because we just need to fill in the blanks. And it's yeah, I think it's that natural human desire to kind of complete the the action. I'd be interested in talking to Daniel McKay directly and hearing from him say, here's what's happening or here's what and here are the real concerns. Here are the things that are, you know, maybe a bit exaggerated on the Internet, that sort of thing. But the other part of it is. To a degree, when you have different people, particularly privacy focused people that are, you know, very concerned about security, to a degree, you probably are going to have some friction and there is. niche market and these people are very passionate about the projects they do so i can see how some friction would arise at the end of the day why i have from the beginning and why i continue to advocate for open source is largely because we can stay unaffected by that the source code is available regardless of if the rest of the, the the human connection implodes right somebody else can pick up pick up the torch where we left off and continue on so i guess that's long story longer If there is drama in the community that's unfolding, if there are problems or friction, I guess I would suggest we just let them sort that out themselves. And as long as commits keep coming, let's talk about the technical meritocracy of how well the projects works. And I have to tell you, so I have I finally made the switch. So I'm in the process of figuring out what I'm going to replace my stupid S10 that Samsung unnecessarily lock the bootloader even though they didn't do that for the other devices all the way around the world but the one in the US they decided to do that and I'm still upset about it but I have moved all of my work stuff from that device over to Graphene OS so that I can try and see so now it's a full time all day everyday thing and so far we are 100 out of 100 absolutely no problems so when I actually get a device and I'm able to run both of them side by side in hand all day long. I'll come back and give like the final thumbs up. But at the moment, I don't have enough good things to say about Graphene OS. If it was available in a Best Buy or, you know, a cell phone store, I'm convinced there'd be more people that would that would do that. It's funny that my phone actually goes off as I'm having this conversation. I'm convinced more people would, would, would follow this path of having a privacy respecting phone.
0: So there's a story that I'm reminded of. I'm, I'm going to Um, change it a little bit just for radio appropriateness, but there, there's two people and there's, they're surveying a, let's call it a jail and they're, they're walking along and the one guy's getting a tour and they walk by this first pit and it's got like barbed wire and it's electrified and you hear noises coming down and, you know, a paw comes up and they kind of step out of the way and, and they just kind of take note. And they go to the next one. This one's got like solid cast iron bars across it. They look down and they just see like glowing eyes coming back at them. They come by this third pit and there's nothing covering the pit. In fact, the pit looks kind of shallow. And the guy getting the tour turns to the other guy and says, why is there no cage on this one? He says, just watch. And as they're watching, a person climbs out of the hole, gets his hand to the to the ledge and then gets pulled back down. And he said and the guy giving the tour says, you see, those are full of humans and they will they will prevent each other from escaping. And that's essentially what's happening with this uh, with this conflict. Right. Anytime anybody pulls ahead in any kind of unique way, we as humans, we don't like that. We need everybody to kind of be at the same level and we do whatever we can to pull them down instead of. Instead of everybody trying to raise the level, we, we actually try and knock people down and take chunks out of their work. And that, that happens in open source. It happens in proprietary software, too.
1: Yeah, 100%. I, I, that's a great analogy. I love that. Um, so, you know, largely, I would say let them work it out. And, and, again, I would focus more on the technical aspects of it than I would the social aspects of it because really, I think, in the end, that's what's going to matter.
2: From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of May 6th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Linus has announced the RC1 release of the 6.4 kernel. GCC 12.3 has been released. Clam AV has released version 1.1. The QT Group has released QT Creator 10.0.1. The Parrot OS team has released version 5.3 and have jokingly warned users not to upgrade unless they want better security and better performance. CIQ, the company behind Rocky Linux, has recently added a new service to its portfolio aimed at enhancing how organizations manage complex software infrastructure and solutions. CIQ Mountain is a mountain of solutions that provides software and artifact delivery and lifecycle management for turnkey solutions at any scale. Google has released an open-source Bazel plugin for creating distroless base images for Docker, According to Google, using minimal base images reduces the burden of managing risks associated with security vulnerabilities, licensing, and governance issues in the software supply chain for building applications. However, on the flip side, it appears that Google is disabling the ability to unlock Pixel phones unless you connect them to the internet and half a gig of data is transferred between Google servers and the phone. In other hardware news, Monocle is a device built by Brilliant Labs that's an open-source AR device that clips onto ordinary glasses, which the company CEO believes will offer a personable, approachable on-ramp for anyone looking to experiment with augmented reality. Monocle has recently gained a lot of attention as it has been shown off being used as a heads-up display for ChatGPT. The DIY ThermoCam V3 gives individuals access to a portable, affordable, and customizable thermal imaging platform that is based on open-source software and hardware. The Kubuntu Focus team has announced a new Linux-powered laptop in partnership with Carbon Systems that is called the Focus IR14. Tidelift, a provider of a platform for managing open-source software use, has released the results of a survey that they conducted that show that of the 339 open-source software maintainers they spoke with, 60% classified themselves as hobbyists, and only 13% claimed that they earn all or most of their income from maintaining projects. Mattermost, the developers of an open source collaboration platform, has enabled the ability for security conscious organizations to expand their internal capabilities to run local and private cloud AI models for insights without having to share that information with third parties like OpenAI or other firms providing generative AI models. And UC Berkeley has recently released a free alternative to Meta's Llama language model.
1: If passwords and password management has you frustrated from time to time, the time has arrived where you can get rid of all of your passwords. Well, not all of your passwords, but the system is here to to replace passwords. It's called Passkeys. It's an ecosystem that is far from complete, but Google's implementation is now ready to use. And so actually, interestingly enough, one of the first companies that I saw come out with this was actually Microsoft in their Office 365 suite. And now Google is picking up on it. And this is part of the FIDO2 WebAuth and standard. And so the idea here is we started where when you wanted to get into a site, you had to provide a username and a password to log in. And over time, what we found out was that it's, it's not a really great system because you if you use the same password that you can remember on all of these sites, you create a security vulnerability for yourself. So then it, then the challenge becomes, well, let's create multiple passwords for multiple sites, and oh, by the way, let's make them 24 characters so that they can't be brute-forced by computers. Well, now we've hit an issue, because you're going to have a difficult time remembering one 24-character password, let alone a separate 24-character password for every single site, and even if you could somehow remember a separate 24-character password for every single site— If one site gets popped, then you have to go learn a new one and the process starts all over. It just the process doesn't scale. So the only reasonable answer is to go to a password manager. Well, that seems like a good idea right off the bat, right? You put all your passwords in the password manager, put a one master password, and then you're good. The problem becomes if somebody is able to compromise the password manager, not only do they get all of your usernames and passwords, they have a freaking directory listing of where to use them. So that's not a really great solution either. We solved this problem a long time ago in the server administration world. And the way that we do that is with keys. We have a set of cryptographical keys. Now, despite what some people will tell you, the truth of the matter is doesn't really matter if we're talking about a private key or a public key. The reality is what one key does, the other key undoes. So if we encrypt something with the private key, we can decrypt it with the public key. If we encrypt something with the, the public key, we can decrypt it with the private key. What one key does, the other key undoes. And we leverage this technology with pass keys. So we generate two keys. We generate a private key and we generate a public key. We take the public key and we send it to, in this case, Google servers. And we tell Google, when I show up at your site, you'll still prompt me for a username and password like you ordinary would, but I don't have to enter it. Instead, I can click show more options. And it gives me the option to sign in using a pass key. When I choose sign in using a pass key, Google generates some garbage data, sends it to me, I sign the garbage data with the private key that only I have and give it back to Google. Google then takes the garbage data that's signed by my private key, looks to see if their private key can undo the operation that I did with my private key with the public key. Recall what one key does, the other key undoes. So if I've encrypted something with my private key, the public key can decrypt it. Google rediscovers the garbage, which they know to be the same garbage they sent to me when they signed the key. Therefore, they know I'm in possession of the private key. I must be Noah and it lets me in. This blew my wife's mind. The ability to sit down, to sign into a site and not have to use a password. Instead, you're just touching the side of your computer and it says, oh, I have the key. I'll let you in. That is awesome. And again, we apply to the standard of something we have and something we know, because you have to have access to the private certificate. You also have to, if you've used a pin to secure your private certificate, have to have a pin in order to do this. So the way that Google has rolled this out, they rolled it out with Pixel devices already having passkeys created for them and they just show up on the device. I also noticed that my Samsung S10 already had a device, or excuse me, a passkey created and generated for it. Now you can learn more about the passkeys that are have been created for your account at g.co slash passkeys. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And what that link will do is it'll take you to myaccount.google.com slash sign-in option slash passkeys. Now, they use a process known as cross-device authentication. So the idea is once one device is trusted, so for example, if I trust my phone, I can simply from then on when I want to sign in, I go to Google.com. Let's say I'm on a public computer, public kiosk. I go to Google.com. I click sign-in, show more options, passkeys. It displays a QR code. I can then take a picture of that QR code with my phone and use my phone, which is trusted, to send a signal to Google to say, the session that Noah's sitting in front of is actually Noah, go ahead and let him in. Now, the one downside to this is it requires close proximity of the device to the thing that you're signing in, and it does that via Bluetooth. I found the experience to be nothing short of abysmal. And so as I went through to try to to see if this works, first of all, there's a number of articles that say that that uh, passkeys don't work on Linux, that is completely 100% false. Well, it's not 100% false, but it's categor- it, it isn't true. You can use passkeys on Linux. Linux absolutely supports the WebAuthn standard. It is run by the FIDO2 Alliance. So there's nothing stopping you from doing it. Google's implementation inside of Chrome does not allow you to generate a passkey and store it on the Chrome device like it does inside of macOS or, and in fact, I'm not even sure it works well on Windows. I saw a reference that it didn't work great on Windows either. And I, I haven't tried it myself, so I don't know. But I can tell you that you can't store the keys that way on Linux. What you can do is use one of the very many hardware authentication tokens that are out there to store your FIDO2 passkey on it. So I've chosen to use a YubiKey, which is the same device that I use to SSH in and authenticate into my computer and all the rest of it. It also supports the latest FIDO2 authentication standard. And so I, all I did was I went to Google, said, want to add a passkey, have a hardware token? It says tap the device. I tap the device. Great, we learned your device. You're good. Now when I go to sign into Google, it just asks me to whack the side of my laptop and it lets me sign in. And it works fantastically. Um, I wasn't ever able to get the Bluetooth to work either on, I wasn't able to get the Bluetooth thing to work at all. Uh, And the other thing that I found really frustrating, it doesn't work with Google Workplace. So I went, we have a number of clients that use G Suite or Google Workplace or whatever the heck it's called now. They don't support This new thing that they've rolled out for everyone to include all of the plebs that have free Gmail accounts, those people get access to passkeys, no problem. But if you pay Google for their paid implementation of G Suite to use for your business, you know, the place you might want some extra security, apparently you're not able to take advantage of this quite yet. I'm sure they'll get around to it. All that to say, Paskeys are really awesome. I highly, highly, highly recommend you turn them on. I highly, highly recommend that you use them. I think it's a, a, a great improvement of security. I think it's a huge step forward in the way of convenience. Steve, what
0: am I missing? So whenever you have something like this, it's, it's probably good for the vast majority of regular users. But when you and I were kind of mulling this over ahead of time, one of the things that stood out to me is um, there's a lot of targeted attacks against people who are known to have access. So if, for example, the way that this generally works, and I know that you kind of said it way back at your intro of this topic, but essentially there is some protected area of your phone that is only unlocked by, for example, your biometrics, your fingerprint or Mm -hmm. your Mm -hmm. face or whatever, right? And then once that is unlocked, then you can get the private key and do all of the things that you talked about. Um, when I was thinking through this, I was thinking there are a lot of uh, high value targets such as sysadmins or whatever that will be targeted where all you have to do is lift the phone and then get a hold of the fingerprints or the face ID or whatever, you know, not not even to talk about the fact that we've we've seen the the face ID in the past has been faked by really good pictures or whatever. So if you lift the phone from somebody and the way to get at the private key is to just have their fingerprint or their face ID, that's a problem for targeted attacks, because even if so, if someone steals my phone to get at my client's data, right, that that is theoretically accessible through this pass key. I can't rotate my fingerprint. I can't rotate my face ID. And while there may be some other technological ways to rotate your passkey and stuff like that, it's going to be uh, an uphill battle, right? Where I can't... Anytime that you're tying something to biometrics, it makes me uncomfortable because you can't do anything to change that. And I I just feel like... And, and I'll stress the word feel. I feel like this is a bad way to go whenever biometrics is specifically involved in uh, the securing of things because you can't do anything to change your biometrics
1: well said i so yeah i i i was to tell you the truth i was really really unimpressed read it was a miserable terrible experience trying to do things for the phone and i i tried it mostly because i wanted to understand how the average person was likely going to use this but the truth is i just it was such an abysmal experience i don't think i would do it also i don't really care for the idea that i have to transmit my location data and have wireless communication just to be able to prove who i am i'm you know much more comfortable with the idea of just here's a private certificate i'll store it on a secure device and i will sign your thing and send it back to you to me that process more closely mimics i guess what I'm used to in the system administration world, and I like it. And, oh, by the way, it works flawlessly on Linux and every other operating system because, you know, it's an agnostic token. So it just, it talks directly to the browser through the USB port. So that's my rant on passkeys. I absolutely invite you to check them out. We'll have all of the articles and references that we talked about in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. talk all the time on this program about voting with your wallet. And that goes both ways. You can vote for something with your wallet when they do something well, or it's a product or service that you want to support. And you can also vote against them with your wallet. So when a company takes a position or when they engage in a given practice that isn't in line with what your belief system is and what you value, then you probably have a moral obligation to yourself and to your value system to move away from those companies. But what does that line look like for you? And I'm interested in your thoughts at live at Write in and let us know, or call us 855-450-NOAH, 855-450-6624. Let us know what you think. Where do you draw that line? So, Steve, I understand that there was some hubbub in the world over MoVAD, and the idea here was that they were raided. And so as the police executed a raid, they came in and they told MOVAD, you will turn over all of your logs and all of the information on your customers. And we have this warrant and we want you to do this. And their answer was, yes, we would absolutely love to comply with you in every measurable way. There's just one small catastrophic problem. What's that? Well, we don't have any logs. We uh, we sort of advertise that we're a privacy focused VPN service. And so we don't keep any of that information. We have nothing to give you. So being that that's the case, MOVAD couldn't have done anything differently because the police show up at their door. They delivered on their original promise. Oh, by the way of not keeping logs so that their customers were protected, even though the police showed up with a warrant. Why are people on the internet upset with MoVAD? And why is there a call for boycotting their services?
0: So I guess we'll start by saying, I'm not exactly sure boycott boycott implies something stronger. Like you want them to fail. Um, I think there's more a jumping of ship that is being advocated, which is slightly different, right? Like Mm. saying, I don't think we should support these people is different than organizing a boycott to exert pressure on to ultimately either cause some change or make them collapse. So uh, I want to make sure that we're clear about, I'm sure there are people that are calling for boycotting, but at the end of the day, I think that, we need to be careful with this sort of thing. When Malavet, and it, this discussion is just being kicked off by malvet to be clear, right? The the crux of the issue that I, I wanted to talk about tonight was really when a company does something good or bad, when is the where is the line behind, okay, they did something and I'm going to take some action as response to that. And in this case, in this specific case, it brings up the idea of well, what if they didn't do anything at all wrong and they have outside influences happening? In this case, the Swedish government came in, I believe it was Sweden, um, served them with a warrant, they obliged the warrant, and then posted a write-up talking about the outcome and how you know, they explained to the police that there wasn't anything that they could give them and the police were satisfied. And when I saw people calling for jumping ship, I thought, but they didn't do anything wrong. And when the, the counter argument to that is, well, they've been raided and how do you know what they're saying is correct? It's the same, but that strikes me as a little bit odd because if you're questioning whether or not they're telling the truth now, why did you believe them before when you signed up for the service? And so the the discussion I kind of wanted to have was, well, let's, let's stop and think about instead of being so reactionary, let's really stop and think about it. From what they said, if, if you believe the company to be true, they followed everything they said they were going to do. They also, um, you know, walked away unscathed. They didn't have any of their equipment turned over. There was nothing for, for them to be turned over, uh, according to all reports. So to me, this is a company that you should support because they, just like private Internet access were challenged by an authority and have proven that what they said was true, or at least as far as we can know, as long as you believe what what the reports are saying. So ultimately, we need to be really careful about being fickle. That's ultimately what we're talking about. When we are looking at a company like Malvad or any other PIAA um, all of these places that are honestly, they're serving a small community. The number of people that care enough to mail a check in, to mail a physical check to your VPN provider um, is very small. And to see the, to see some some factions of the community even start to ask the questions whether we should be jumping ship, I think you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot because as a market segment, you're small. And the number of people that are going to serve you is going to decrease the more vitriol you display over something that they had no choice over.
1: How many people? I mean, it's not just checks. From what I understand, they accept cash. Like you can mail them an envelope of cash and say, apply it to this account. And then they go, okay. So the government comes and raids them and says, who did this come from? Don't know. Envelope showed up with uh, 20 bucks. And so uh, we applied it to the account. Well, who sent the 20 bucks? Don't know. It just showed up in the mail. So uh don't know. Also, wouldn't I mean, this, you have to you have to think about this a little bit before. It, otherwise, it comes off weird. But don't you kind of want your VPN to get rated so that you know how it's going to go when it happens? Like to a degree. And I've said this numerous times, like the whole reason I trusted private Internet access in the first place, is because you can find multiple court documents where they tried to go after people. They got a hold of private Internet access, served them with a subpoena, said, we want this information. They said, we don't have it. That's the whole reason I trust them in the first place. Who cares what they put up on their site as marketing stuff? What really matters is when the police show up and say, hey, we want all this information, are they going to give it to them? Or are they going to say, yeah, sorry, bub, we ain't got it. And it turns out Movad's one of the places that says, yeah, sorry, bub, we ain't got it. So I guess I'm, I'm not following how that, as you said, why wouldn't we want to, to support them more? They're doing exactly what they said they were going to do. In the thick of it, they came through. They proved themselves.
0: The other thing is you you have to be really cautious about why you're using a VPN or let's, let's scratch the word cautious mm. what I mean is cognizant you have to be aware of why you're using a VPN if you're doing if you're using a VPN to hide illicit activity then you have another problem right mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. the the idea for VPN is largely to do things like if you're in a restricted country and yes okay uh, you're in China and you're trying to breach the Great Firewall of China and all that sort of stuff. Maybe China could apply pressure against Sweden or something like that. But notwithstanding those sorts of things, largely it's to protect my traffic from hostile Wi-Fi access points or mm-hmm. or those sorts of things. If if that's your goal, then the being raided is a problem like we we care about our privacy but at the end of the day it's if you're that worried like if your life is on the line let's say a journalist that is reporting on dissidents or something like that Mm -hmm. you're probably not using this sort of server. like you you're going to be taking much more caution like maybe you're doing multiple hops through multiple vpns and proxies and you know all the rest of that sort of stuff so you need to be cognizant of what is the attack vector that i am trying to obfuscate or hide myself from by using a vpn that's that's ultimately how you should set your services up and choose your companies based on
1: i guess one of the things i would ask though is even if my goal was to my life depends on if anybody finds out where i'm sending this message from where i'm connected from i'm a dead man Like even if that was my situation i feel like if i read this article and Oh, look at that. Mulved doesn't keep blogs, so they can't tell the police where I am or comply with government requests because they don't even, they themselves don't keep that information. Again, I feel like that works towards my goal.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Anyway, your thoughts are welcome. 778 450 er, NOAA, that's 855 450 664, live at com. Write in, let us know what you think. What are your lines? Where do you choose to do business with a company? Maybe more importantly, where do you choose not to do business with a company? the u.s army has long since sought to give its soldiers a connected tech edge and they're finally settled on a vendor to deliver the central piece of equipment they need to put all the pieces together and it is known as the next generation hub or the ngh and it's a rugged wearable usb device and ngh is going to serve as a central control point for what they call the net warrior system n-e-t-t warrior system and it's the u.s army's latest network-connected kit for infantry troops. And so the idea here is it is named after a Medal of Honor recipient named Colonel Robert Nett, and it's designed to be a system that uses commercial smart devices with tactical applications and special networking tunneling systems that allow a tactical Operator to be able to be delivered real time information via maps and situational awareness and individual soldiers and, and all the rest of it. So in 2013, the Army actually acquired some Samsung Galaxy Note 2s as part of the Net Warrior system. And what they did was they took each of these devices and they stripped all of the commercial features out. So they took the cellular antennas out, they took the Wi Fi out, they took the Bluetooth out, and then Army engineers wiped all the software and installed the National Security Agency's. Uh, or the NSA-approved Android operating system, which is essentially a modification of the stock Android operating system. And then the smartphone communicates through a USB connection to the hip-mounted data-capable Rifleman's radio uh, for the network connectivity. And so, essentially, this NGH acts as the central hub that connects the data radio over to this end-user endpoint. And because commercial products are bought, the smartphone has to be acquired and then modified and so what, they're, what, they, what, what they landed on is what they're calling the Army Geospatial Central Central ARFL, uh, the Android Tactical Assault Kit, ATAC. And I guess what stands out to me is a couple of things. So first of all, they built the perfect endpoint and used existing encry- encrypted radio data links to transmit the information and just stripped out all of the other radios and things in the device. And so there's really nothing for the enemy to latch onto because the device itself doesn't contain anything. The second thing is the U.S. government and the military discovered what I've been saying on this program since 2017. And that is if you buy an Apple device a few years later, it's nothing more than a paperweight because Apple will only let you run what Apple wants you to run. If, on the other hand, you purchase an Android device. Yes, Google wants to collect all of your data and sell sell it. But even the U.S. military has come to the conclusion that you can strip out all of their software and strip, and in their case, strip out all of their hardware, and then you're cooking. And so, uh, you know, we'll keep an eye on it. They're going to, it includes a bunch of other things, targeting systems and laser range finding and night night vision and thermal sites and all the rest of it. I mean, it's a really cool system that they're, they're deploying. From the limited conversations I've had with some military personnel, they're not overly excited about it. So I'm not going to pretend to say I understand the battle readiness of it or the, the implementation of it in the field, but I think it's kind of cool. So the Net Warrior System, you can check it out again. We'll have links free in the show notes, com. Red Hat Summit, May 22nd through the 24th. Producer Q5, Sis and I will be there interviewing all of the folks over at Red Hat and giving you the latest of what's happening at Red Hat. And then Southeast Linux Fest coming up June 9th through the 11th. You can learn more at southeastlinuxfest.org. Also join the Matrix Space. It's where all of the coordination is happening. They're looking for volunteers and there is a room in the Matrix space specifically to get volunteers connected, as well as all of the speakers will be in those rooms to answer questions, discuss and build relationships with you. It all happened June 9th through 12th. You can we'll have a link for you for the Matrix space in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. The music in our ears means we're out of time. Thank you for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. It's live. If you want the latest, visit us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Evans. We'll see you next week.